Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. I want to take you back a number of years, quite a high number, actually. I was a registrar, a surgical trainee at London's Hammersmith Hospital, the Royal Postgraduate Medical School. Due to the international reputation of the institution and the heavy hitters who work there, not me, I hasten to add, we had lots of visitors, doctors, surgeons who traveled the world over to see how we did things and to purportedly learn from us. One such doctor is today's guest, Professor Ariel Halevi. I very quickly established that Ariel was going to teach me many things and also that he would become a dear friend, a friendship that has seen us collaborate on research and clinical projects, to enjoy vacations and meals together, to visit other centers of learning, to be there to celebrate life's successes and support one another through life's challenges. Ariel was born in Israel and attended medical school in Bologna, Italy, one of the world's oldest universities and, incidentally, a gorgeous city. His doctoral dissertation, entitled The Role of the Thyroid Gland in Calcium Metabolism, emphatically underlined that Ariel would have a robust academic as well as clinical career. He conducted surgical postgraduate studies in Tel Aviv, carried out research on tumor cell migration at the world-famous Weizmann Institute, and developed a well-rounded enhanced education in hepatobiliary and colorectal surgery and liver transplantation, as well as an honorary research fellowship at Milan's National Cancer Institute and a sabbatical at MD Anderson in Texas. Ariel has always sought to finely hone his skills to help his patients. He became a consultant and eventually chief of surgery at Asaf Horafair Hospital in Israel, where he built an amazing department that I was privileged to visit several times, as well as becoming a professor at Tel Aviv University. Professional societies, organized meetings, editorial boards, awards, doctoral student supervisions, publications, including some with me, presentations, he has done it all. Ariel is also a very cultured gentleman who loves music and art, embraces travel and different cultures, and is a peaceful soul. Also has a very dry and laconic sense of humor. He's married to Ruthie, an experienced nurse who used to work with him, and he has two lovely children, Dana and Nia, and Nia followed in his father's footsteps as an accomplished musician and ENT surgeon. Professor Ariel Halevi. Welcome to the EMJ podcast, my friend. Hi, Jonathan. So, Ariel, for everyone's benefit, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into medicine and what made you want to be a surgeon? Well, (laughs) my mother was a chief nurse in a hospital. And since I was a child, she took me to the hospital and I, you know, met many doctors and nurses and uh, I was, I believe, at the age of 14 or something like that, and a surgeon took me into the operating theaters of this hospital. And uh, since this moment, I felt that this is going to be my future and I'm going to be a surgeon. And actually, I followed my enthusiasm to study and to become a, a future surgeon. But it was, the beginning was when I was really a young child. 
So how, how young were you when you were taken into the theatre? Well, you should know, you know, my history, my parents are actually uh, immigrated to Israel uh, after the, my father, after the Second World War, uh, and he immigrated to Israel, and I was an only child, and there was no one to treat, uh, to take care of me while my parents worked, so I used to finish school and go to the hospital and wait with my mother until she finished work and then go back. So this this was the first time that I was introduced to the field of medicine. And since then, I'm there more than 50 years now <laughs> uh, as a surgeon. But Ariel, you're also a very accomplished musician. And I know that you entered a music academy, but you chose medicine over music. What, what drove that decision other than your parental uh, well, the reason was very simple. I took piano lessons and I took uh, conducting lessons. And my teacher of conducting was a very known Israeli conductor. And once we had a talk um, and I uh, put in front of him my question whether to continue music or uh, to go and study medicine. And he answered me a very, very simple answer that actually changed my life. He said, listen, to be a musician, you should be infected with this disease. It seems that you are not infected, so go and study medicine. And actually, this discussion made me change my mind and go and study medicine. But, you know, once I became a surgeon and uh, I used to go to concerts, and usually I met my piano teacher in the concert and she would go to my wife, to Ruth, and say, listen, the field of music has lost a great pianist. And I used always to answer, I hope that at least the field of surgery has gained a good surgeon that helped many, many people and actually brought a cure to them. So this is more or less the, the story. Since then, I, I am playing the piano. Now that I retired, I take uh, lessons off piano. I took s some lessons in composition, but my main training went to surgery and I'm still, my life is still there. You know, uh, a friend of mine, Ariel, who's a, a guitarist, um, when he was chatting with my son, who was then, I guess, about three years old and was just starting guitar lessons. And my son said to him, how old were you when you started guitar? And he said, about the same age as you. And he said, um, when did you stop taking guitar lessons? And, and this guy is, is, is an older gentleman. He said, I still take guitar lessons. And my son said, but you know how to play the guitar. And he said, you never know how to play the guitar. You're <laughs> always learning. It's the same with medicine, really, isn't the it? Same, the same. So, Ariel, as is the case for any Israeli, um, sadly, you had to do military service. And I know there were many wretched stories from the various tragic wars and so on. But you spent time in the Sinai Desert, and I know you have great affection for that area. It's a pretty stunning part of the world. And you have some heartwarming stories from that region. So let's keep this upbeat. Tell us one or two heartwarming stories. Well, you know, at that time we had to do a twice a year, 48 days of service in the army. And I used to do it in the desert of Sinai. We had our, you know, clinic, a military clinic. And 
the Bedouins of the desert used to come and ask for medical assistance from, um, from us. There are a lot of stories from this period of time. Uh, one, a very simple one, we had at the military clinics uh, very few drugs at that time. We had the paracetamol, which is a white tablet, and then we had the, the vitamin B supplement, Bevitex, which is a small, very, very red uh, tablet. And then we had the antibiotics, the chloramphenicol, that is not used today, which was blue, uh, of blue color. Uh, they would come with abdominal pain, diarrhea, dehydrated, etc. So we used to put a line, an IV line, and give them some fluid. And then we used to give them, you know, uh, some paracetamol and antibiotics and, and uh, vitamins because they were, part of them were malnourished. And then I noticed that they would get out of the clinic, speak one with the other, and they would change the value of a chloramphenicol, the blue one, they would get two paracetamols. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the red one was the most dearest because it valued four acamol for white tablets and two blue tablets. And that was done every, with everyone there coming to the clinic. Now, Ariel... Um... You shared with me a while back, you decided to start writing down some stories from your life and you shared them with me and many of them were utterly delightful. I hope we're going to see these published very soon. But in one story, you quote Sushruta, the revered Indian physician who said, he is a good surgeon who possesses courage and presence of mind, a hand free from perspiration, tremulous grip of sharp and good instruments, and who carries his operation to success and to the advantage of his patient, who's entrusted his life to the surgeon. The surgeon should respect the absolute surrender and treat his patient as his own son. Of course, this was in those days very gender-specific, and no apologies, it's a historical statement. But Ariel, please tell us your perceptions as to what is a good surgeon. I know you're one, but what is a good surgeon? <laughs> Well, I didn't know. At least you tell me. Listen, this is a very complex uh, question, and uh, there is not one uh, definition. If you go at, at to read different uh, researches on the subject, you will find many, many, many uh, points or, uh, that actually try to define what is the good surgeon. The question is, are all these points that we are going to mention, can this all point be found in one person or there is only a part of these qualities in one surgeon? I just manage if, uh, uh, name a few of them, like you need to be intelligent, you need to be professional, you have to be creative, conscientious, you have to be with courage, perseverance, you have to have a warm personality, an ethical approach. You should be humble, should be realic. You should have a good sense of judgment and self-analysis and curiosity. And most of all, you should have a dexterity. You should be able to perform an operation. And what I usually told my resident is you should respect 
the tissue. If you respect the tissue you operate on, the tissue will have a nice process of repair. If you will be rude in, with your work, the results will be very, very poor. Well, this is part of the question, um, but I believe that uh, one of the most important is the ability to learn and to get better. And the, 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 I believe the most important um, thing that happened in the last three decades is the entrance of uh, uh, laparoscopy into the field of surgery. And you see that surgeons that did not actually learned this new approach and to retire while the other ones who learned it actually continued to work. And uh, you know better than I that you were between the first one to do laparoscopic surgery in the world. And actually, I learned from you how to do it. And that's more or less uh, what I see as a good surgeon, a complex of virtues that to my great regret, not all surgeons have. Yeah, I think that's a very rich definition. Um, you know, a lot of people who are lay people think, uh, and it's become a bit of a trope, really, that surgeons are dispassionate and they don't get involved in their patients' lives. I've actually found that not to be the case at all, and that one carries the the weight, the emotional weight of the profound responsibility of, of looking after someone who's sick. And I know that I can see the name and the face of everyone who did not have the perfect outcome. And yeah. you know, one is always questioning whether one did the best job. You, you also referenced in, in your writing, uh, Ariel, Albert Wu. And in 2000, 20 odd years ago, he described surgeons as the second victim. Can you explain that to us and give us some examples? Well, that's what you have said. Um, taking the responsibility on the life of the surgeon, uh, of the life of your patient, makes you responsible for every results that uh, will occur. And I have a lot of examples. One of them was uh, one of my senior surgeons where the huge experience with bariatric surgery and he operated on a 18 years old lady and she died after surgery because she had some form of a very severe coagulability state that nobody knew before that and she died whatever we did for her didn't help i brought all experts from all over israel in any field to consult with them during the operation, but finally she died on the table. And this surgeon actually uh, stopped operating. I did anything possible to bring him back to the field of surgery, but he left, he couldn't continue. Actually, you can define surgeons as a second victim because you feel the responsibility, you feel shame, you feel loss of self-confidence in your ability. What would be the reaction of your colleagues? You fear a lawsuit. Everything actually is bringing you to a situation of despair. And many surgeons actually stop their work because of such an event. I look at the surgery as a battlefield 
people will die, but depends if this was a preventable death or not. If it was, you'll feel guilty that you did not do your job. And actually, you live with that many years, many years. And I had cases, uh, I've lost a patient on the table that uh, a truck actually hit him and I couldn't do anything. And he was a young male. And I remember that for months, for months, I couldn't take him out of my mind. And this is one example, but there are many others. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, I want to discuss a parallel, actually, now between you and I. At medical school, I was, I think the term wretched is about, uh, it sums it up. I was wretched at dermatology. I just could not, I was, I was garbage. I could not do it. And I know it wasn't your best subject. You told me an interesting story about how your dermatology professor viewed your struggles with the subject. Share that with us. What 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 transpired? Well, uh, studying in Bologna, you had a notebook that there was your picture and your name, and there were pages, and you went from one institute to another to do the examinations. There were uh, overall thirty-two examinations that you had to do along the. Uh, your studies. The examination took place in uh, lecture halls and they were open. Everybody could come in and listen to the exam you did. Well, I, I came uh, to do the exam in dermatology. I must confess, I was not well prepared. And the um, examination began, but you should look at it at, at a little bit different uh, way because you come with your notebook and all the previous exams that you have done are written there, passed or passed with extension or failed. And most of the exams I did, I passed with distinction. So she opens my notebook and she see passed with distinction, passed with distinction. And here I don't know the basic of dermatology. And she was very, very offended by that and she told me that uh, I don't take uh, dermatology seriously that I it's a disgrace the, the way that I treat dermatology and she took my notebook and uh, uh, signed failed and threw it towards the lecture halls and it fell between the chairs and I was humiliated but I had to go between the chairs and to look for the notebook and to take it <laughs> And then come back a month later for, for uh, doing the exam. And then I passed it, but certainly with no distinction that time. But it, it was very humiliating that, you know, you, you go between the chairs to look for your notebook. Yeah, I, um, when, I, when I was having my struggles, I, I had the misfortune to be telling one of my friends that you know, I didn't know what the big deal was about dermatology. It was just about describing what you saw, turning it into Latin. If it was dry, make it wet. If it was wet, make it dry. And if that didn't work, prescribe steroids. Well, unfortunately, the professor of dermatology overheard me and wasn't very impressed in my sense <laughs> humor. And but I have to say, in the in the passing years, I would became absolutely fascinated by manifestations of central disease on the skin. So, you know, if you have ulcerative colitis, as you well know, there are various skin patches, yeah. or you can get pitting of the fingernails, or you can get finger clubbing, and all these skin manifestations that hint 
it's like one dermatologist uh, described it to me as like, you know, people say the eyes are the, the window to the soul, but, you know, then the skin is the, the window to the body. And I have to say that my stupid juvenile disdain for dermatology was pathetic. And it's actually an absolutely fascinating subject. I just wish I'd paid some attention to it when I was uh, when I was a medical student. There's a phrase that uh, that you, you've talked to me about. You cannot be efficient and polite at the same time. We've talked about this. You're either efficient or polite. What, what do you think that means? What does that mean to you? First of all, I learned this sentence from you. Be <laughs> uh, kind. <laughs> Yes, listen, you and me arrived to a central position at a very young age. Now, uh, that means that we were pushers all along the way. And, you know, um, the, the pyramid is very, very, it has it's wrong, uh, a wide base, but the top is very narrow and only a few arrive to the top. And actually, what I meant is that to arrive to the top, you have to be very, very efficient. And sometimes you are not polite because you have to do things that other people do not like. Uh, I remember that uh, when I uh, was appointed as a chief of surgery, I was very young and there were other seven people that wanted this job and I got it. And they uh, were quite angry with me why I was uh, appointed. But th these are the facts. I'd say it in another way also. I never, never offended or hurt anyone intentionally. But a long uh, career of being chief of surgery for 27 years, some people were offended, even though I did not intentionally uh, do anything to them. And so if you want to, to, come, uh, to become chief or to arrive to the pyramid, to the, the top of the pyramid, probably you will find some people uh, offended by you. And that's my philosophy. Yeah, I think that's correct. So uh, another of your stories, in, in, in the days before there was ready availability of the sophisticated scans that we have nowadays, CT scans, MRI, PET scans, and so on, we'd sometimes resort to doing a diagnostic look into the abdomen via surgical means for patients with abdominal pain with no clear reason. We'd do a diagnostic laparotomy mm, yes. or a diagnostic laparoscopy. You told me a great story about a patient who overheard doctors talking about how a diagnosis might be reached. Please tell our audience. I love this one. <laughs> well, you know, at that time, there was no CT, MRI, ultrasound, nothing. I'm, I'm speaking in the, the beginning of the 70s. So um, sometimes people came with abdominal pain. You did all available tests at that time, and you did not arrive to a diagnosis, reach the diagnosis. And uh, so patients were hospitalized and re-hospitalized. And at a certain point, we decided to do a what uh, we call to open the abdomen, a diagnostic laparotomy, and to see if there is uh, any problem in the abdomen. And most of the people didn't have any pathology, and, and actually the surgery was uh, futile. So in, uh, in one day, in a great round in the morning with my boss and deputy, I was yet a resident. Uh, there was a man that it was the fourth or the fifth hospitalization with abdominal pain. So uh, uh, one, the deputy director, 
was quite, let's say, uh, sarcastic, uh, said, you know, the only way to know the diagnosis in this case is to, uh, would be in the post-mortem. And the patient said, okay, so if this is the only way to know my uh, problem, so please do me a post-mortem. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this is a real story, Jonathan. This, no, no, you know, it's, it's a real story. I so, remember once getting, uh, yeah, so I'm sorry, carry on, carry on. No, no. I, I, it wasn't the beginning of the 70s. Uh, so do did, anyone tell, did anyone tell him what a post-mortem was? Yes, of course. <laughs> he was like, no, I'm not consenting to that. You know, I was once on the ward as a medical student, and in those days there were nightingale wards. So, you know, yes. 12 beds up one side, 12 up the other, and we were doing ward rounds. And it was with Professor Robert Shields and, and the rest yes. of the team in Liverpool, bless him, lovely man. And um, he was doing an exact, you know, he was having us examine patients one by one. And this particular one, uh, Bob Shields said, um, you know, he was post-operative and he was wanted him to not get a venous thrombosis in his legs. And he said to the guy, it's very important that you move your legs. So we can see him wiggling his legs under the bedsheet. And we moved on to the next bed, the next bed, the next bed, turned right, turned right, started moving up the other side. And I stupidly looked over my shoulder and I could see this guy in bed was still wiggling his feet. And I completely <laughs> lost it on the ward. I just burst out laughing. And Shields, bless his cotton socks, he looked at me quizzically and then he saw where I was looking and he got this, he was a Scot. And he always reminded me of a rather diminutive Sean Connery. He got this rather sardonic smile on his face because he knew I was laughing. So sometimes medicine can, even with silly things, make us smile. So, Ariel, I know you looked after a patient who at discharge asked you about what car you drove. It's another great little story. Please share it. Yes, my, my hospital uh, was in an area that um, many let's say, uh, criminals lived, and uh, there was every day, every day, stab wounds and gunshot wounds that we had to treat. And this is uh, actually my great experience being a surgeon. So one night uh, comes in um, a young man that was beaten almost to death, and he had many cuts on his face and neck and chest and abdomen and, and, and back and legs. And it took me a few hours, you know, to suture all his wounds. And once uh, I finished, he said, thank you, doctor. It was in the middle of the night. And then he says, uh, what is your car number? I said, why do you know, want to know it? He said, listen, I'm going now to steal a car from the parking area. So let me know what is the number of your cars and I'll not steal your car. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story, uh, Jonathan. Yes, that wonderful. Is... <laughs> wonderful. So, you know, that's an example of a patient being honest and telling you everything. And you and I have shared the belief that this is the case, whether it be words, appearance, how they walk, talk, everything. And being attentive, paying attention to the patient is actually a joy. It's like detective work. Can you give us some examples of situations where just being attentive yielded um, an answer to a patient's situation? Well, I and you actually come from a period that there were no 
tests that could aid you in the diagnosis of the patient. So all the diagnosis you made were based on clinical evidence only. And uh, here comes the, 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 my view that the patient tells you everything. You just have to listen and uh, uh, to accumulate the data, and then you can do the diagnosis. I remember that I used to uh, make diagnosis of acute abdomens clinically, and I was quite, quite good in doing so. While the uh, surgeons of today don't do even a very good physical exam, so, okay, abdominal pain, go and do a CT, and they will have or not the diagnosis. I told my residents that to listen to the patient, to look if he's pale, if he's calm, if he's restless, if he has a suffering face, what is the color of his skin, and then I would like to see his blood examination, and then I would have the, the picture and like a computer, elaborate all together and trying to arrive to the diagnosis. I'm very sorry the, the, the new generation does not work in the same way, and they are probably more accurate today than the times that you and me were uh, based uh, our diagnosis on the clinical uh, establishment. That's more or less what I can tell you about it, that there are many patients that I see, I speak with them, I examine them very well, and I decide for wait and see. Others I would uh, um, refer to do some tests, and altogether I reach the final diagnosis. That's what I have to say about that. Yeah, I think, you know, um, um, another very dear friend of mine who's a GP, we often talk about this, that the most important observation is, is the patient sick? Yes. And if someone looks sick, then you've got to start taking everything, you know, very, very seriously. So you, you, I, are, you are precise. That's the point. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, I have to, I have to ask you about this one. This is, you know, sometimes one can do incredible molecular biology lab work, incredible, get a peer reviewed publication in the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet or Nature. But one of my favorite stories in your writing was also a peer-reviewed publication, but it was a case report. And it was a case report of a patient who was seemingly bleeding from their gut, but it was a rather unusual cause. You have to tell this story. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it was a young prisoner that uh, every few weeks would come to the hospital with uh, melena. Melena means black stools because a uh, result of uh, bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract. And uh, we did every possible test available these years, even an angiography, to find the point where it bleeds from, and we couldn't find anything. So we'd give them... Uh, Transfuse them with three or two portions of blood and send them back to jail, and so on and so on. I believe at the seventh time he came in, it was the afternoon, and my boss said, Okay, enough, take him and operate on him. Uh, I was very uneasy to operate because he, he was a very, uh, how to say, um, man that I could not uh, really believe his stories. So I took a chair and sat beside uh, him and asked him again and again and again. And then I began uh, to, to uh, I gave him the, you know, the paper to sign 
for consent consent for the surgery and i said that there may be complication and even death as a result of surgery so he said stop doctor then he he, he said stop wait and i see him move uh, opening his mouth and turning his tongue upward he puts a finger in his mouth and takes out half of a, a knife of, you know, a, of a blade. Yeah. And he says, you see that blade? Yes. Well, yeah. He takes his left arm up and shows me, and I, I was very ashamed because I didn't see it before. He shows me uh, many cuts in his axilla, axillary oh. region. Right. It was, it was very, very airy, and it was quite difficult to see it. So, and then he says, listen, every night I make a cut and I let it, I put a glass there and I collect half a glass of blood and then I drink it. And after a few days, of course, I get melena and I call, you know, the, the, the staff and say that I've got the melena and they bring me to the hospital. And so the secret was revealed we sent him home, and we wrote this case report. But before that, a um, few years later, a few years later, I was called in the middle of the night to uh, help my residents to operate on a young male that was actually shot in his chest while he uh, entered a house to, to steal. The owner of the house uh, shot at him. Well, I, when I arrived to the hospital, the patient was also already anesthetized. So I stopped the bleeding and uh, we finished surgery. And I went to the, the, to the um, recovery room to see his face and to see if everything is uh, fine. And then I see the face of this young man. He actually left uh, outside, got outside from the um, prison after four years. The same night that he went out from the prison, he actually uh, buried uh, and he was shot. With, uh, we published this case report and the situation is called auto-vampirism. And this was one example of, of auto-vampirism. Yeah, well, I have to say in the textbooks, because when you first told me the story and I saw the paper, I went through all my textbooks of surgery and I couldn't find any references to it. So yes. it's a, it, you know, when you think you understand medicine, you think you've seen everything, <laughs> then something else comes along. Yeah. So you also mentioned to me a paper by Richard Thurlby from 2007, noting the top 10 reasons why general mm-hmm. surgery is a great career. Things like you can be a hero, the training's fun, and your mother will be proud of you. What are your reasons, Ariel? Well, uh, my mother was really proud of me because, you know, <laughs> every, every Jewish mother wanted yeah, a son to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, no? Uh, so I, I was a doctor. But uh, of these 10 points, of these 10 points, I um, believe that training is really fun. And although it was very, a very hard period, I used to do between 10 to 12 night uh, duties every month. Uh, training was fun. And uh, the most important of all these then is that I love to cut. I love surgery. I love 
to take a sick patient to operate on him and to see a few days later that he goes home fine and uh, uh, and cured that made me a very very good feeling so i believe that all of the 10 is that i love to cut and i believe jonathan the it's the same with you oh yeah there's yeah. the the you know even something like fixing a hernia the the degree of satisfaction yes i you know a defined act that you can make someone's life profoundly better and obviously if you're doing uh, operating for a, for a cancer um the, 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 there's no finer privilege. And it always struck me that the profound trust that a patient puts, you know, you think about it, you walk into a room, it's someone you don't know, they don't know you. Um, and, you know, the, the old joke is you're, you're lying on an operating table, you're paralyzed, you're naked, you're surrounded by strangers who are wearing masks and they've got knives, right? <laughs> the level of trust is profound and it yes you take it very very seriously so thinking about relationships um and and trusting relationships with patient and serving not just as as you know as surgeon or also as educator you wrote a book for patients about breast cancer how can doctors do a better job educating patients and, and books like the one you wrote are certainly one such way but what what else well, I'll uh, add two words about two sentences about the book. I was actually a fellow at the Instituto Nazionale dei Tumori in Milan, which is an excellent, excellent center for cancer treatment. And I was astonished by the quality of uh, uh, surgery and oncology there, and especially in breast cancer at that time. So I decided to write a book telling every uh, women the basic of breast cancer and the, the way how to diagnose this as early as possible. But Jonathan, I believe that today this book and us, the doctors, have lost their place as educator and the internet took over because everything is today on the internet and Certainly, behind every program or podcast in the internet, there is a doctor or a nurse or a specialist, the oncologist. But still, um, I believe that we doctors uh, lost our post as the educators for, uh, to prevent breast cancer. At that time, uh, 30 years ago, this was the only way to teach women uh, how to uh, diagnose breast cancer at the earlier stage of the disease. Yeah. So, Ariel, unfortunately, we're heading towards, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, and I've got a final question for you. If you had three wishes that would allow you, well, let's assume that you're in the Sinai. I know how much you love being there. And you're walking through the sand and your foot kicks against something and you reach down and it's a brass lamp. And you rub the brass lamp and a magic genie pops out. And grant you three wishes, three wishes to improve global health. What would they be, my dear chap? Well, I, it's a little bit too big for me to answer such a question, but I'll try uh, the, to tell you how I think uh, things. I believe that the first one is widening knowledge. Don't forget that uh, the knowledge, medical knowledge, is uh, changed 
every 10 years, 60% is changed within 10 years. So to, you have to widen and you know it. Remember, Jonathan, when I finished medical school, few years previously, the DNA was described. Just remember that. So widening knowledge is the first point. The second one is prevention. And the third one is the spread, uh, spread the availability of medicine to lesser developed countries. That's the three points that I could uh, put together uh, to answer your question. Well, um, Ariel, you said in your writings that although you were never a, you'd never abused drugs, you said that you know what addicts feel like because you're addicted to the practice of surgery. And I, yes. for one, on behalf of the world, am really glad that you are. Professor Ariel Halevi, my dear friend, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us, for your <laughs> inquiring mind, your sense of humor, your storytelling, and all you've done and will continue to do for patients and medicine. Thank you, Jonathan. It wouldn't take place without you. Thank you. <laughs> You're a sweetheart. So, Thank folks, you. that's all we've got time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And we'll I did. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think we're going to continue talking. And yes. uh, please subscribe for our weekly shows. Tell your friends and like us on social media so that more people can find us. Until our next EMJ podcast every Friday, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>